This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Ministers, Excellencies, distinguished delegates, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here in Dublin uh, on what is a hugely important day in terms of an international statement uh, on a very important issue. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Ireland and indeed to Dublin Castle as together we take a major step forward to protect civilians from explosive weapons in populated areas. Hi everyone, this is Annie Scheel, Senior Advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict. And I'm Mark Arlasco, Military Advisor from PAX. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. Today we're going to take you behind the scenes of a landmark international declaration signed by over 80 countries last month. The Political Declaration on Strengthening the Protection of Civilians from the Humanitarian Consequences Arising from the Use of Explosive Weapons in Populated Areas, also known by its acronym, EWIPA, E-W-I-P-A, for short, a phrase you'll hear a few times in this episode. Our teams at Civic and PACS have been working for years as part of INU, the International Network on Explosive Weapons, to make this declaration a reality. And they traveled to Dublin a couple of weeks ago to attend the signing conference, where they reported live. So, without further ado, we're going to hand it over to them. Hajar Naili, Civics Director of Communications. Sahar Muhammad Ali, Civics Director for the Middle East and North Africa, and our lead on urban warfare. And Rose Bohr, PAX's project lead on humanitarian disarmament. We start in a hotel room in Dublin, about 24 hours before the signing begins, where Hajar, Sahar, and Rose are getting ready for the first day of the conference, a civil society forum to endorse the declaration. Hi, my name is Hajar Naili, and I am the Director of Communications at Center for Civilians in Conflict, CIVIC. In this new episode of the Civilian Protection Podcast, we are taking you behind the scenes of the final moments preceding the signing conference of the Political Declaration on the Use of Explosive Weapons in Populated Areas. These weapons have devastating consequences on civilians. These weapons kill, maim, and displace civilians while damaging and destroying civilian infrastructure. To give you an idea, here is one staggering number. When explosive weapons are used in town, cities, and other crowded areas, 90% of victims are civilians. In other words, the use of explosive weapons in populated areas has now become the leading cause of civilian casualties in today's armed conflicts. The political declaration is the first formal international recognition that when cities and towns are bombed, civilians are the ones who suffer the most. From Mosul to Mogadishu to Tripoli and Kharkiv, there are no shortage of examples. That is why action to eliminate the harm to civilians caused by the use of explosive weapons in populated areas must be taken urgently. Unlike most of our previous episodes, 
This one is recorded close to where the action is. So we are in Dublin, the Irish capital, where representatives of dozens of countries are gathering to endorse and sign the declaration. We are taking you along for the next 36 hours. Today is Thursday, the 17th of November. We are on the eve of the signing conference of the political declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. We are in Dublin. I'm joined by Sahar Mohammed Ali, Civics Director of the Middle East and North Africa Program and Rose Boer, Project Leader for Humanitarian Disarmament at PAX. Good morning. So uh, let's uh, set the scene again for our listeners and um, if you could tell us what is happening now in Dublin and more particularly uh, tomorrow on November 18th. So we are here in Dublin today uh, because on Friday uh, we expect 60 states to convene to sign the political declaration on strengthening the protection um, uh, of civilians against the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. And this is a culmination of, as you were saying, uh, three years of negotiations between states, uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, the UN uh, and civil society organizations. And Rose and I, while we represent our individual organizations, we are part of uh, the international network of explosive weapons in populated areas. Uh, that uh, is a consortium of NGOs advocating uh, raising awareness on the humanitarian consequences from the use of such weapons and pushing states to change their military policies and practices. Uh, so it's pretty exciting that we are here, uh, and this effort has been ongoing for about a decade. So there are two elements uh, we would like to focus on in this conversation. One is explosive weapons in populated areas, and the other is the political declaration. So maybe let's start with the explosive weapons in populated areas and uh, help our listener listeners understand uh, what are these explosive weapons. So I think just to set the stage, uh about why we are here uh, tomorrow and what has happened over the last 10 years to get to this uh, stage in terms of really seeing what the patterns of harm are to civilians. Current conflicts and future conflicts are taking place in urban areas. Uh, urban warfare is impacting around 50 million people world worldwide. Uh, it is one of the most difficult uh, things to conduct military operations in urban areas because of the terrain, the buildings, uh, subterranean uh, underground uh, areas, uh, the presence of the population, uh, uh, presence of critical infrastructure such as hospitals, power, uh, electric power facilities, uh, water treatment facilities, and uh, we have seen uh, that uh, when explosive weapons are used in populated areas, 90% uh, of casualties are civilians. So uh, there are both direct effects uh, from the use of these weapons to civilians in terms of death, injuries, displacement, um, as well as uh, uh, when, a hot, when these weapons uh, impact hospitals and electric power grids and water treatment facilities and they're degraded or damaged, uh, the civilian population is unable to use these essential services that they need to survive. So that also leads to displacement. And we've seen in current conflict um, 
that there's protracted displacement because these areas are, are unhabitable. Uh, and the, the, the challenges for civilians and why all of us have come together, you know, a very, you know, states have uh, been leading on this too, but civil society, all of us who are working in conflict areas, in war zones, are seeing the direct impact to civilians. PACS has been doing research on the ground, uh, Civic has been doing research on the ground, and so have other organizations. And we have then been raising awareness on the humanitarian impact and what can be done by states. And we're happy to discuss more in terms of the um, actual commitments in the political declaration, but I just wanted to set the scene that this call to action is based on data from the ground and saying, this is unacceptable. The consequences to civilians are unacceptable and something has to change. I think the indirect effects of explosive weapons are really important to note here also today because towns and cities um, often host critical infrastructure that, that civilians depend on, right? And these effects are often <clears throat> overlooked. So we, we read the news in the newspapers about the direct casualties, the deaths and the injuries, but often we overlook the long-term and intertwined pattern of harm that arises. When water services are impacted, a hospital will not be able to wash its patients, provide water, but also the heating doesn't work. In Avdievka, I spoke to a nurse who was injured by fragments from a shell, then was operated in the hospital she worked in, but because the electricity was off, she was operated under uh, a candlelight. Mm -hmm. This obviously meant that many of the fragments were missed and they were still in her body. And this is just an example of how these effects in, no, influence each other and what the impact is for civilians. Uh, this is very helpful. You here are providing us with a picture of the the the, the nature of warfare changing, uh, moving to towns and cities. Now, maybe Rose, uh, can you go um, deeper a, a, a into the type of weapons we're talking about here? Explosive weapons basically refers to a type of weapon that um, that detonates and that projects blast and fragmentation around the point of detonation, right? A hand grenade will do so, but also a, a heavy aircraft bomb. So it's a very wide range of weapons, but what they have in common is that they project blast and fragmentation. There's, there's a range, and there's a range in risk that they pose to civilians when these weapons are used in, in populated areas. And I think the main... Um, the main uh, factor that will, um, that will dictate the risk to civilians is how far the effects will extend from the point of detonation. This is often referred to as wide area effects. And um, wide area effects can, can, um, can flow from, from three different characteristics. So one, if you have a very big high explosive load and a very big blast, for example, and big big wave of fragmentation, the impact area will be bigger than if you're talking about a small explosive load. Mm -hmm. So that's one characteristic. Second, if you use multiple munitions over an area, of course, the wide area effect will also increase. And then last, but certainly not least, is the inaccuracy of a weapon system. And that means that you basically don't know in advance where a weapon will land exactly. And this, of course, is extremely problematic 
problematic if you use such an inaccurate weapon in a populated area, because it's reasonably for, to be foreseen that you will not hit the target, but instead hit civilian objects or civilians. So I think these wide area effects are very problematic, and it's especially that category of, of weapons that, that you know, poses civilians at great risk when these weapons are used in, in towns and cities. So now that we have uh, described what these explosive weapons are, and now we understand better the consequences and the damage they cause, especially on civilians and civilians, uh, civilian infrastructure, can we uh, move on to the political declaration? And, and uh, can you uh, explain what is this political declaration about? What is uh, what this document contains? Yes, um, I think first and foremost is the first formal recognition of the, the unacceptable consequences of the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. This is really important because if you recognize the problem, you have the first step to addressing the problem. And I, and I think that the declaration really does a good job in descri describing both the direct and indirect effects these weapons have on civilians. So that's the first really important thing in the declaration, the um, acknowledgement of the, of the humanitarian uh, problem, so to say. The declaration then has a central commitment that dictates that uh, militaries should restrict or refrain from the use of explosive weapons in populated areas when their use uh, is expected to cause harm to civilians or civilian objects. This is a very important commitment, of course, about the use. Then there's also um, uh, commitments that states are making in the declaration to collect and share uh, data on the, on the effects of the use of explosive weapons, uh, and also to provide uh, support and assistance to victims and their communities. Yeah. And if I can uh, just add, uh, one of the really uh, interesting and uh, positive aspects of this uh, declaration is first there's a recognition that you know all military operations should be of course conducted in adherence to international humanitarian law but it's a call to action that uh, changes are needed to military practices and policies and training to specifically understand what the risk to civilians are and to civilian objects and how to adapt to the complicated and very challenging environment of conducting operations in populated areas. What this declaration does in recognizing the humanitarian consequences, particularly in the use of these type of weapons in populated areas, is ask militaries, no, you need to go back you need to change and you need to examine mm -hmm. what sort of policies you have in terms of the, the, the as Rose was saying, uh, you know, refraining and restricting the use of a particular type of weapons uh, in populated area because of the grave consequences. So uh, now can we uh, go back to where it all started and tell us how this whole journey towards the declaration as it is right now uh, all began? So. Uh, civic, uh, I'll talk about it from civic's uh, perspective. Uh, in 2011, uh, civic worked with the African Union Mission in Somalia. Also known by its acronym, 
Amazon. To help draft their indirect fire policy. And a lot of these weapons that we're talking about are indirect we- fire weapons, indirect weapons, because they don't directly, they're not direct fire munitions, they don't directly land on the target. Uh, and as part of that, uh, because there was uh, reports that when um, our 120 millimeter artillery was landing in Mogadishu, a lot of civilians were being impacted. Uh, and there was a lot of reputational harm and criticism to Amazon. And they took the leadership and the initiative to say this something has to change. And uh, so this indirect fire policy was written that uh, refrained and restricted the use of uh, uh, the, uh, indirect fires in um, populated areas. And then also uh, Civic worked with them to create the civilian casualty assessment tracking tool. Uh, now, other... Um, NATO forces in Afghanistan also had uh, policy guidance uh, from the commanders restricting airstrikes in residential area, having, you know, they created civilian casualty tracking cell, doing better battle damage assessments. So suddenly we were hearing about these good tools and practices. At the same time, uh, you know, a lot of us were also documenting the harm to civilians in all these conflicts. Uh, and uh, in 2011, I, I think it was Austria who first uh, began the conversation, and uh, and then since then, um, the ICRC, OCHA, PAC, Civic, a lot of other NGOs, Humanity Inclusion, uh, Article 36, uh, other civil society organizations, uh, you know, sort of came together and started raising awareness on the humanitarian consequences. Uh, and Civic was participating in those conversations to share that there are good practices and policies out there that could be used and should be shared with other militaries uh, in order to stem the tide uh, and to uh, reduce civilian harm in in this particular context. And so there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, awareness raising sessions and conferences that we all were participating in. And then in 2019, uh, Austria convened a uh, conference, uh, P- Protection of Civilians in Urban Warfare. 130 states attended it, civil society, and that then led to the formal uh, process with Ireland taking the lead mm-hmm. uh, in uh, uh, starting the negotiation and drafting of the political declaration. And it began in 2019. In November was the first time we all met. Uh, to discuss the political declaration, the draft of it. Uh, and then even despite COVID and everything, we met online. Uh, and again, uh, you know, credit goes to the leadership of Ireland that they were very persistent and they had a very difficult task of negotiating the text uh, and, uh, you know, between states and, you know, states have their own perspectives. Civil society, humanitarian organizations have their own perspective and trying to formulate and negotiate the language. Again, you know, credit goes to Ireland's leadership uh, in this process. And we have a really forward-leaning document. Uh, Rose, I'm sure you have a lot to add to what I just said. Um, So over to you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I think I think it was already in 2009 where the UN Secretary General mentioned in his Protection of Civilians report his concerns about the use of explosive weapons. And I think what really took us there was that it was not just states, not just civil society, but also UN organizations, the ICRC. It's the partnership, and that grew over the years and the years and years of, of different actors with different fields of constituencies and 
um, fields of expertise. And um, I mean, in the beginning years, it was Austria convening, and it was a smaller group of states. And a lot of focus was on, indeed, on documenting the harm, making sure that the explosive weapons terminology was accepted by state. And there was a lot of awareness raising, indeed. And um, I think there was also a sense of addressing a, a moral outrage gap or something, because there was a lot of acceptance, right? If, if, you, if you go to war, there's collateral damage, and explosive mm-hmm. weapons are just being used, and uh, it's like, don't touch it. Um, and I think this, this whole change in how we look at the use of explosive weapons and the civilian harm, I think, has been a really big shift over, over the last decade. Um, so yeah, and then from the smaller group of states, we, we expanded the group, and indeed Vienna was a milestone with regard to the sense that there were so many states there, but also that Ireland announced their, you know, their, their roadmap towards the political declaration. And then when we were almost there, we were almost there, I think it was like the last final consultations on the text of the political declaration, then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And there was another two years added to the process in which we had to convene the meetings online. Um, personally, I was quite worried in that moment. I thought we're almost there and then there's this setback and how do, how do you keep the momentum if you can't meet, if you can't negotiate? It's a diplomatic process, you can't really do that online, right? But I think we managed, and, and under the great leadership of Ireland, we are now here today. With a lot of um, actors involved in that process, th- the declaration is obviously the result of many compromises and probably a good amount of frustration. Uh, could you speak of uh, commitments or language that you campaigned for but did not make it into the final draft? Yes, you are right. I mean, a text is always a compromise. I think Pax would have liked to see the reference to white area effects in the central commitment to make sure that you know states refrain from the use of explosive weapons with white area effects in populated areas. But on the other hand, the description of the white area effects is in the preambular, right? And if states review the text, the, their course of action will follow from the problems as described in the preambular. Um, with regard to yeah, the data gathering, it says where feasible and appropriate, I think it would have been stronger if we would have you know, not mentioned the appropriate. It's always appropriate. It's a question of being possible or not mm-hmm. uh, appropriate. I think it is always, but that's, that's my view. So, but I think in general, you know, considering the fact that it will be a compromise, I think it's a good basis. I think it's a good starting point for positive change. And when implemented in, in good faith, I think this, this declaration really has a potential to have an impact. But yeah, it's not the end of the road. It's a starting point. It's a milestone. But the real work, you know, starts here. But I think the interpretation and the implementation of the political declaration is really at, you know, the core of yeah. the change it will have for civilians in conflict. After tomorrow is focusing on uh, implementation and political will and leadership is needed. And and it's not and it's for states to say this is going to be these commitments are going to be implemented and applied for all conflicts at state if, if they are called to action or either in defending their country or in support of partner forces or if they are called to uh, participate in a military coalition. It doesn't matter if it's a counterinsurgency operation or counterterrorism operation. 
these kind of commitments should be implemented for all types of uh, situations of armed conflict and urban warfare, large-scale combat operations, and how these commitments should be also adapted and resourced to the more difficult kinds of uh, operations where you have in urban areas. So we now, it's uh, tomorrow we'll be celebrating a milestone and, you know, we will stay vigilant, you know, to ensure that states in good faith are implementing these commitments and what overhaul they're going to be doing to their policies, their training, their practices, their doctrine, and sharing these good practices so after the signature begins the uh, implementation phase, and so before we uh, end this conversation, uh, can you briefly speak of how we make sure that countries are on track and are truly making the changes and taking the actions they committed to? So the declaration um, calls for, I think, four point, uh, yeah, Article 4.7, ask states uh, to meet on a regular basis to review uh, the implementation of the declaration and how it is identifying any additional uh, measures that it's going to take and then to exchange good policies and practices. And it all, the declaration also asks states to include the perspective and participations of the United Nations, ICRC, uh, other relevant international organizations and civil society organizations. So having this very structured intergovernmental and military to military exchange complemented from the perspective of the external actors. Because we have seen, and again this is from civics perspective too, that when you don't, cons there will always be gaps in any military assessment of what they are doing. Uh, and so it is so important to get the perspective of conflict impacted communities from civil society because they are on the ground. They have access and are able to move around areas that sometimes military forces may not because of force protection reasons or other reasons. So having this holistic approach is really important. And the development of the declaration was in this very inclusive approach, very collaborative approach, bringing in the perspectives of all uh, you know, states, uh, militaries, uh, NGOs, uh, the UN and ICRC. And, the, and again, the spirit of this declaration and implementation also calls that this kind of regular exchange um, is uh, sort of continues. And I think tomorrow we'll also find out uh, which state is going to sort of take the lead in sort of facilitating, we hope, I don't know. <laughs> uh, in facilitating uh, this coordinating role of states meeting to discuss how they're implementing uh, the declaration, and uh, I hope we learn more about it tomorrow. Sahar and Rose, uh, this was very, very helpful. Thank you. Uh, we'll speak again tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow we will also be in the room as country endorse officially the declaration, and we will be there to remind them that what they do after can mean a difference between life and death. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jane Ann McKenna. I'm the CEO of DOCUS, which is the Irish Network for International Development and Humanitarian Organizations here in Ireland. And we're delighted to be uh, co-hosting this event with INU today. We now fast forward to about 10 hours later. The Civic and PACS teams have just wrapped up day one of the conference, a gathering of civil society groups and states coming together in advance of the signing. 
Survivors of armed conflicts, activists, members of international organizations, as well as government representatives such as Ireland and Austria came together uh, today on the eve of the signing conference of the political declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas to celebrate a significant milestone for the protection of civilians in armed conflicts. Um, today is a moment of celebration. That's a feeling that was repeated shared uh, in Dublin by most of parties that have taken part in this process of uh, drafting and negotiating a political declaration. International organizations also described the political declaration as a strong document with the potential to save civilian lives if implemented correctly and rapidly. The Irish ambassador to the permanent mission of Ireland to the United Nations in Geneva, Michael Gaffey, explained that he never thought that we will be all here one day in Dublin to sign such a declaration. Uh, and I think we need to see uh, the, this, this issue as very much, it's not just a disarmament issue, it's a humanitarian issue, it's a political issue. But above all, it's, 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 it's an issue of, uh, it's a moral issue and an issue of human decency. And, and I think what we've achieved, all of us together, is very, very significant. And we've achieved it at a time when the world is not in a good place. And when we are uh, experiencing crisis after crisis, interlocking crises that are affecting everyone. So the, even the concept that we discussed ad nauseum of reverberating effects, I think yeah. we understand even better uh, in these days, as every crisis that we face has an impact on every other crisis, compounding them. So this is, 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 is a moment, I think, for us to really savour, not to rest on our laurels, but at this point, when so many people say that things are hopeless, we have managed to achieve something in the area of disarmament and humanitarian disarmament, which many thought we could not achieve. He also said that this political declaration is not a Ukraine declaration referring to the current war in Ukraine. And it's really important to state that this is not a Ukraine-only agreement. This is an agreement about the use of explosive weapons in populated areas and the protection of civilians in armed conflict, wherever that conflict may be taking place, including Ukraine, but also Yemen also Syria, also Iraq, and else, elsewhere. Survivors of the war in Syria were also in the room and shared what it was like to live under constant bombing. One survivor who fled Aleppo 10 years ago, Nujin Mustafa, she told us that she used to turn up the volume of her TV in her living room to cover the sound of bombs falling over her city. Um, I was 12 at the, at the time, uh, the age where you all you care about is your school test or your favorite musical band. But um, um, I was, we were all afraid for our lives, and it's not an experience that uh, experience that I would wish on anyone. Uh, we were being bombed every day, and we would wake up and sleep um, on the sound of bombs uh, and the constant uh, air raids. Um, it just it's not a psychological state that anyone should, would want to be in, being constantly anxious and afraid. With my wheelchair, it, it, was, even, uh, it was even more, I didn't have the, the choice to even go to a shelter if, if things got uh, very bad. Um, um, I lived in a, through an apartment with no lift, 
which meant that if we needed to go, if we needed to seek shelter or hide immediately, it was not an option for me. If we were lucky and had um, and had electricity, I would just raise the volume on the television just so I wouldn't hear the sound coming. And uh, and it, it was you know it was sad to you know it was sad to see the city that I've loved all my life. Uh, be destroyed and and bombed for for no for nonsensical reasons for no reason at all. She also explained that there is no time for countries to keep thinking if this is a declaration that they should sign or not, because she said time is not on the side of civilians in armed conflict today, and this sentiment was echoed across the room. We don't have time, you know, we don't have time to sit sit down and negotiate and even talk about talk, talk talk about such a such a declaration being a possibility it has it should have happened years ago and i'm and i'm happy that it's happening now because you know being being late is better than never arriving but it's you know it's not a topic where you can uh say maybe and if and yeah we, we should see what we can do it's it's not this you know, uh, human lives are being affected. These are the people, people that have got, gone through these things. These are, they are not numbers. They are not, you know, they're not a statistic. They're not something that you can read and ignore. Uh, and it's not just lives that are, being, that are being threatened. When you're in a war zone, you, you, you don't have any prospect for the future. You're not, you're not thinking about school or your future career when you're just trying to survive. It's not, you know, and so, for example, in our case, a generations of Syrians have have not have not uh, received a proper education, have not um, you know have not uh, taken the steps to build their future and reach their potential as individuals, and that's and that's very sad. Ministers, Excellencies. Distinguished delegates, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here in Dublin uh, on what is a hugely important day in terms of an international statement uh, on a very important issue. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Ireland and indeed to Dublin Castle as together we take a major step forward to protect civilians from explosive weapons in populated areas. That's Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney. To orient our listeners, we've now arrived at the big day, November 18th, the signing of this landmark document. Here's how we opened the signing conference. For too long, we've seen appalling consequences for civilians, including in Syria, in Yemen, most recently, we are seeing the devastating consequences of explosive weapons used by Russian aggression against Ukraine. And it's not often a byproduct of conflict. It is often a deliberate targeting of civilians in order to break the will of a people, community by community. Images of human suffering offer a stark reminder of the international community's collective responsibility to address the root causes of humanitarian suffering and reject 
absolutely reject any normalization of such scenes, somehow described cynically as collateral damage. We want this political declaration to be relevant to current and future conflicts by sending an unambiguous message on the fundamental importance of the protection of civilians always, regardless of circumstances. Over the next few hours, 82 states would sign the political declaration, over 20 more than Sahar and Rose initially predicted. The commitments made on November 18th here in Dublin are a major step towards recognizing formally that actions to protect civilians from explosive weapons must be taken. Among the states that signed the political declaration, two stood out because they continue to face the persisting threat of armed conflicts and the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. It was Somalia and Palestine. Somalia's Minister of Foreign Affairs reminded the audience of the deadly impact of explosive weapons on civilians and the destruction of infrastructure, while recognizing that the declaration offers essential tools to safeguard civilians. Palestine Ambassador also welcomed the declaration, saying by endorsing it, Palestinians are sending the message that the lives and the welfare of civilians must come first, no matter on which side of the conflict they are. Here's Hajar, Sahar, and Rose leaving Dublin Castle that evening. So, um, Sahar and Rose, uh, we are here. It's uh, the end of the day on November 18th in Dublin. Uh, 80 states have announced uh, that they are signing the political declaration. Um, I want to hear from you uh, what happened today in the room and how do you feel about 80 states signing the declaration? It's actually 82. Oh. Yes, that's, uh, so it's pretty exciting, right, Rose? I mean, I don't know, it was a very positive, most of the statements are very positive, very supportive of the collaborative process. Uh, yeah, I think the number of 82 is a smashing number, which is yeah. actually higher than we had expected in advance. And I think one other thing that happened today, which was very positive, was that the next meeting was mm -hmm. announced by Norway. So this, this, you know, point in the horizon and to move onwards in a collaborative way to implement the declaration, I think for me was also a highlight of today. Yeah. What I thought was also interesting, a lot of states talked about implementation and said, this is an urgent call to action and we need to implement. And some military active states were the ones who were saying it. And they were basically saying that all states and militaries should be implementing this. So. I thought that was very positive. Implementing the declaration, also mentioning that there's always ways in which you can improve the implementation of existing policies and policies practices. And practices. Mm -hmm. I think this was a very hopeful yeah. day and um, it, yeah, it's promising for the near future. In the end, 83 countries signed the political declaration. Signatories came from around the world from Africa to the Middle East, to Europe, to Asia, and Latin America. The United States and many NATO members were also among the signatories. And as our guests emphasize today, implementation cannot wait. Civic, PACS, and our colleagues at the International Network on Explosive Weapons will continue engaging with governments who signed the declaration to ensure their commitments are implemented rapidly and effectively, as well as to engage countries that didn't sign to gain their support. That's it for this episode. Next up on the Civilian Protection Podcast, 
we'll explore how climate change is driving conflict, and in turn civilian harm, in Iraq and Yemen. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Hajar Naili and Annie Scheel, with assistance from Sahar Muhammad Ali, Rose Bohr, Mark Arlasco, Selma von Oshvard, Aaron Bell, and Tate Musinahama. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Hajar Naili and Tate Musinahama made sure we're online. We'd like to thank Sahar Muhammad Ali and Rose Bohr for joining us as guests, as well as the numerous other speakers whose voices we featured today. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content. Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites, civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening.